Welcome to the Reconstructing Inclusion podcast. We're creating a space to speak truth and examine context in diversity, equity, and inclusion. That means creating a path forward for everyone to recognize the benefits of inclusion individually and collectively. I'm your host, Omri B. Johnson. I'm a Topeka, Kansas, USA-born, Switzerland-based epidemiologist playing the role of an inclusion, diversity, and equity practitioner for the past 20 years. I'm the author of Reconstructing Inclusion, Making DEI Accessible, Actionable, and Sustainable, and the CEO of the DEI-centered management consultancy, Inclusion Wins, creating culture from the hearts of individuals. Let's jump in. Welcome to the Reconstructing Inclusion podcast, episode four. I'm joined today by April Thomas, Chief Solutions Officer of SDMS 360. I'm going to let her share more about herself as we go on. But I first of all want to thank the audience for being with us. And I don't like to waste time, so we're going to jump right in. So I blindly reached out to April Thomas. She didn't know me from Adam or Eve. Um, was that April in 2019, 2018? It might have been 18, 2018. I'm thinking 18. Um, and I was, I was living in Boston at the time, but I reached out and I said, can I just, can we go to dinner and get to know you? Because uh, one, I, I think you have a perspective that very few people have on this work. And, uh, you know, I'm a fanboy of your father. So she actually accepted my invitation and we'll let her talk more about, about her dad. Um, but I, I want to welcome you, April, and I appreciate you being here. And if you don't mind, just introduce yourself to our audience. Who is April Thomas? I know her title is Chief Solutions Officer at SDMS 360. I also know that she is a, a professionally trained musician, and there's a lot of other layers there. Um, but April, please tell everybody a little bit about who you are and and whatever else you want to share with folks. Okay. Well, thank you. First, Armory, let me just say thank you for inviting me onto your podcast. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I'm looking forward to our conversation. And as far as myself, um, it's funny. That's usually what I share. April Thomas, SDMS 360, CSO. But um, I think if I were to share anything else, um, just, I think for me, I'll share like my story of how I even came just to be in the work. Um, my, fa my father obviously is Dr. Roosevelt Thomas Jr. and is considered the uh, um, guru or thought leader for diversity management. And so, but growing up, you know, he was just a dad. And so I knew he had something to do with giraffe and elephant, but as far as the details beyond that, um, yeah, I, I wasn't that familiar with it or in, you know, engaged in that aspect but um in fact um he in 2013 i was preparing to move from boston to los angeles to pursue music editing because i really just discovered that out of my studies at berkeley college of music and literally probably um sometime in may 
Well, May 13th, actually, is when he, May 17th, I'm sorry, is when he passed. So I came home, did the funeral, uh, attended the funeral, and even spoke. And I shared, you know, he's passed his baton on to us. And you, everybody do what you feel you need to do and can do with your baton. And I was going to go out to L.A. But that eve, that uh, when the repast, someone asked me, would I consider running his business? And I was like, you know, I'm a musician, right? <laughs> like, there's no connection at all. At least I didn't see one. And so, but the question intrigued me. And so I started reading his books. I'd never read any of his books um, by that time either. So I started reading the first one that he wrote, Beyond Race and Gender. And just in reading that book and hearing the impact that he had on the lives of people who came to the funeral and just the different things that people had shared with my family. Um, I think the biggest thing for me that I discovered about my father's work was that it was based on principles. I felt that it, that's, that resonated with me because that's the way that I try to live is by principles. And so I thought, I don't know everything about diversity management. I mean, I don't know anything about diversity management because I had just started focusing on that and reading the book. But I knew that I could I live by principles. And if his content is on principles, there's a synchronicity there that I could um, take advantage of to, to leverage, to become more familiar with the content and work with it. So um, that the May 20, uh, it was Memorial Day 2013, actually. So it'll be 10 years this coming May that I actually wow. decided to to. Um, come, come back to Atlanta and take up his work. And so that's been my, um, yeah, my work. And I feel like I'm more of a steward of what, of his work. Um, I mean, I, I don't know how you can really improve on what he's done. Um, it's as I think about it and how relevant it is now in 2023. And he started like, I think his first article or one of his more well-known articles was in 1991 um, from affirmative action to affirming diversity. And it's still relevant, unfortunately, in the sense of the work that we, that needs to happen, additional work that needs to happen. Um, And I think it also speaks to just how, um, you know, people often say ahead of his, ahead of his time that he was in terms of that something from 1991 to today is still relevant and necessary. And so yeah. I'm not trying to ex- build on it. I'm just, my goal has been to, yeah, try and get it in the hands of people who can actually use it and to see the power and potential of it. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to stay on that principle uh, theme for a second because uh, your dad's work was very much based on principles and it was based on, building something that's going to last on those principles rather than something that's temporary or what he called cosmetic. And I use the word cosmetic quite a bit in reconstructing inclusion. When he talked about that, he wrote an article, I guess it was one of the last articles that he had published called uh, The Shamming of Diversity. Mm -hmm. Um, When he talks about this cosmetic approach, how does a principle-centeredness, probably how you were raised, <laughs> as well as how he did his work, how does that principle-centeredness inform diversity management? Because it, you know, I got a chance to get exposed to your dad, and I didn't really even know the principles. I just 
could resonate with what he was saying when I would follow him around Atlanta, trying to figure out where I can see him speak in the right. early 2000s. He just spoke to things that were like, wow, if we did that, we probably could naturally create a lot of these things that we're constantly talking about when it comes to representation, when it comes to you know, humanizing the workplace, particularly for those who have been historically underrepresented and in many cases dehumanized. How do those principles kind of play into that? And, and how does that go from cosmetic to what he often talked about, which I also bit, <laughs> to systemic? Right. I think um, a, a couple of things just that are coming to mind. When I think about um, the shamming of diversity, I was thinking about that, you know, in preparation for a call. And what I'll give an example of just my own experience in working with my father's content and in having, I haven't worked with other, organ, you know, diversity organizations. I've just talked with other practitioners and gleaned from their experiences, um, you know, what I understand that, like, for example, I know one company that they, they take the same content, for example, kind of like example, exactly what my father talked about with a shamming, a sham, you have a pillow, but then you can put something, it's the same pillow, but if you put a different pillowcase over it, it looks like something different, but really the essence of the content, it is the same. And so I know, um, a consultant shared with me that a, a company he worked for, they would basically do that. They'd keep their same content and change the name of the content that they would present to um, a company because it would match whatever the topic was of the, you know, the flavor du jour um, in diversity. And so, and I, yeah, I'm, I thought about that with our content because I'm just like, and the reason I thought about it is because our content is so, um, what's the word? It's so universal that it can be applied to any context, but I just, I couldn't do it. Um, one, just trying to be faithful to, you know, what my father, my father's content. And I was just like, I'm not going to do it. And if we don't get the work because it doesn't, it's not hip enough or entertaining enough, then I don't, I don't want it. And so for me, that's a literal example of what shamming looks like in the sense of you have, you present something like the essence of something, but you just decorate it up, change the name, make some minor adjustments so that it fits whatever works or what people think that they're looking for and what they need today. As yeah. opposed to you have like for my father's content, I think to like just the definitions that he provided and established that are universal across any, not only the con any context, but in any country, you can take his principles and his de definitions and concepts Absolutely. from Absolutely. the U.S. anywhere. Um, and so that for me, and that makes it, um, his content, something that is, is sustainable in the sense of one, you don't have to, you're not trying to learn multiple definitions of what diversity is or what, what factors you need to look at. Um, and it's not that there aren't nuances that you have to adjust or consider, um, but it's just when you have a framework, it makes life easier, much easier and able to navigate all the differences that we're talking right, about. And right, so just right. liking it to, you know, learning how to drive a car. There's certain foundations and principles that we learn how to drive a car. Insert the key, adjust the mirrors, steer, brake, gas, go, you know, stop. <laughs> and and then there's some new, but 
once you learn those skills and you practice, then you can start to expand them to, okay, driving, what types of cars are you driving? There are different types of cars. There's auto and um, automatic and manual. There's um, different levels of the quality of the car, just in terms of the right. speed, the power, the right. maneuvering, et cetera. In the same way, I liken that to the nuances that come with um, the different, particularly when you're talking about representational diversity, you know, say um, if you're looking at either race, gender, sexual orientation, um, uh, age, language, et cetera. Yes, those are all differences, but there's certain um, principles that are the same regardless of what's mixture that you're talking, that you're trying to address. And so if you can, I'm, I liken it, or it's not even that I liken it. My father talked about developing a diversity management capability. And for me, mm -hmm. that's like, if you can develop a capability to drive a car, then you can expand those skills to, to address whatever specific context you may find yourself in. But the skills don't change of how to drive a car, even with an automatic like the Teslas and all the self-driving cars. The concept is still the same. You may not be sure, doing it, sure, but sure. that car is driving. It's moving forward. It's changing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the basics, it's almost like, you know, if you have that foundation, you can walk into a variety of situations utilize those principles and I, i'm gonna i'd like you to go over uh some of the principles that you use in the uh, personal diversity management and index is that pdmi pdp the personal diversity PDP, paradigm. The personal yeah. diversity paradigms but there's also you also use a, a, a rubric that i, I want to at least get people exposed to because it's based on requirements and i want to talk about requirements versus preferences traditions and conveniences so Hold on to that for a second, sure. because I think it's it's extremely important and it really resonated with me. And I, I, I utilize the language a lot because when I start talking about bias, everybody's been talking about bias for years. I, right. I started doing this work training in unconscious bias in 2003. And <laughs> to this day, I don't know how great it was. I think people were entertained, right. but I don't know if they really understood that biases are our preferences, traditions, and conveniences. And if we base things on what we require and what we want to create, and we've agreed to that, we can understand that our preferences, traditions, and conveniences might be getting in the way. But I'm not, I'm not going to go into that right now. I, I wanted to go to an, another question. Um, uh, in 1991, your father wrote a book called Beyond Race and Gender. And if you think about where we are today, um, in what ways do you believe we've gone beyond either of these two single identities and how have we yet to? Right. I think definitely we've expanded in the conversation of DEI and just the DEI space. It definitely the demographics that we're talking about on one level, we have, you know, race, gender, and then just the plethora of dimensions, demographic dimensions, just because they are limitless. And there's, um, yeah, there's just so many. So we've, and those each over time have come into play, not only into play, but been addressed through legislation. Many have been addressed through, and, you know, the legislation has been expanded to address concerns there and inequality there. Um, so that's one way that we have expanded, gone beyond race and gender. I think the challenge, though, in the ways that we haven't, though we've expanded that, the, the pool, so to speak, of the mix um, in terms of what falls under diversity, I think we need to, what we haven't 
is expanded um, the conversation. So for example, with the um, demographics, that's representational diversity. We haven't expanded the conversation often beyond representational diversity. So then um, a next step beyond, and when I say beyond, I'm not saying ethics to forget representational, I'm saying just to expand the conversation, broaden mm -hmm. our lens that we're looking at this. Um, I'd say the second, um, we not only do you have just like the, the the representational diversity, but you also have to manage differences. I know that oftentimes people say, often when we have these conversations, it I think people walk away with that all differences are important, like all the time. And that's just not true. It's not, it, our brains can't function. That's why when you do talk about biases, our brains automatically filter things out that aren't important for this specific context. And so everything is contextual. And so I think that that's an important thing that we haven't, um, we need to learn to expand our conversation to know what's the context, what do we, basically what's the requirement in this specific event, in this specific moment, what is essential and what's not. And that, that means that there's some things that are going to be prioritized and there's some things that aren't. That means that in another situation, the things that weren't prioritized before could become the priority. But there has sure. to be, we have to develop that flex, ability to flex when we need to and to know what we need to flex and what we need sure. to turn to. So I think that's one way that we haven't expanded um, the conversation. Um, I think another way that we haven't expanded the conversation is in terms of looking at the organizational culture. Often when people say culture, I think there are two types of culture and it's not, I don't think I've, I'm not original to this, but I think there's a clarity that needs to be articulated. There's a social culture. So you have things like, let's do the celebrations around Black History Month, Women's Month, Pride Month, um, even Juneteenth that's gonna be coming up in, in June. And so those are uh, social, what I say call social culture. And so, yes, we, we've expanded the conversation to include those, but then there's also the organizational culture that we need to look at. And everyone talks about the organizational culture, but I'm not sure that we're clear when we say culture, I think we focus more on the social aspect as opposed to the yeah. organizational culture. And that means that we're looking at the systems, policies, practices that an organization puts in place, that that's how it gets work done. That's where exactly. you're talking about the systemic change that needs to happen. When you had, um, when George Floyd's murder happened, that's what people were looking for. And they gave us Juneteenth. Juneteenth isn't structural. <laughs> so <laughs> everybody was like, celebrating. Wait, 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 wait a minute, April. Juneteenth isn't structural? Ah, uh, yep. I know. It's not structural. What does I mean, it change? How does it change anything, the way that an organization functions, except that you're now either closed to that day or you're, you're highlighting the awareness around Juneteenth. But that doesn't change how they function, how they get work done, how they measure your performance, how they measure outcomes at all. And so that is not, that's not what people are looking for, but they gave that to us. And I think, and I think, that's where organizations, I think, are very eager and it's easy to offer those type of solutions along the social culture aspect of an organization, as opposed to let's look at the structural systems that we have in place and make adjustments there. And I also think that um, there's a, companies are very good at offering training and awareness to the individuals. But then what happens is that they don't do anything structurally to then allow the 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 individuals 
to actually implement what they've been, what they've just learned. Cause there's not, sure. for me, that's a disconnect. And so you're saying sure. here, we're yet, we're all about it. We've offered all this training, but it doesn't change. You don't change the way that you function. And so why would they then do anything with that content if it's not going to have any implication or consequence for the work that they're being held accountable to complete? Exactly. And, and that's one of the things from beyond race and gender that, that really stood out is an early table in the book where your dad breaks down um, the differences between the kind of historical affirmative action approach. And it wasn't necessarily the formal affirmative action. It was really the idea of how we affirmatively uh, look at these situations. And I, I'm going to ask you to talk about the diversity paradigms in a second. But the affirmative action and valuing differences, um, variables as he calls them, or, or, or types of approaches to, to diversity um, were about creating a diverse workforce, upward mobility of women and minorities, better quality of interpersonal relationships, understanding and exploration of the richness that can flow from diversity, the moral and social responsibility and at times legal um, respecting and valuing differences. Uh, of course, the benefits also about creating this diverse workforce, upward mobility, mutual respect, et cetera. But then he goes into the challenges, which really struck me and which I sense today are kind of cyclical. So, you know, if you're on social media, it seems like all diversity consultants or diversity people inside of organizations are complaining about you know, companies not being serious. And so they're, they're kind of now saying though they were cosmetic, they weren't, they weren't serious about it after the murder of George Floyd. That, that's why the, the, the amount of resources put into it have gone down. But your dad, uh, Dr. Thomas talked about the challenges of the affirmative action and value and difference approaches. He said, one, the outcomes are, the challenges is that they can be artificial. I call that cosmetic. You can create backlash. It requires continuous, intense commitment, and there are cyclical benefits, meaning it goes up and goes down. For valuing differences, he said the challenges are that the emphasis is only on interpersonal relationships, which is good, but it doesn't have as much emphasis on systems and culture as you were referring to, less emphasis on management, and again, cyclical benefits. Now, he compares that with diversity management and this is where it gets difficult. And he, he talks about the challenges there. It requires a long-term commitment, requires mindset shift. It requires where we look at different definitions of leadership and um, management. It requires that everybody adapt. And so this is not about women and minorities. This is about everybody. And so it requires everybody to adapt. And fundamentally, it requires systems changes. So you, you mentioned those things. What do you think keeps us from doing that? Because they all seem reasonable. Like it's the way that I believe, I don't really know any other way to do the work, right? But it seems reasonable. Why is it difficult? Because I mean, you've, you've had these conversations I imagine with potential clients uh, about about diversity management approach versus a lot of DEI approaches, particularly after the murder of George Floyd, that were very much focused on um, identity, um, a single identity and representation. What what's what's keeping people from the pivot towards systems and structures and everybody being in the space of 
what we now call DEI? Well, I think one question, just as I'm listening, um, you said you think it's reasonable, and, I, and I'm thinking reasonable to whom? Mm. In the sense of you're talking about the people who can make those changes at the structural level are leadership, and not even just leadership, like senior leadership, the CEO mm. who has, you mm. then have to come in and change the way that, um, you know, Again, how do you evaluate people? How are your, your systems that are in place? How are they functioning? And oftentimes, like I was just watching or skimming through social media, there is the, who is it? The owner of, he's 93 years old. Was it Home Depot or somebody? One of those, he's an older white man. He was saying that the woke people of, um, so I forget what it was, but he was saying woke and saying that he said specifically, though, it didn't hit the bottom line. And so, like, there's not, they, it's, if you can't make that connection from the, what you're trying to do and the changes you're asking me to make and how is that going to impact my bottom line, why am I going to change it? And so, I, that gets me to one point that, one point that I didn't mention of how haven't we expanded it, um, the conversation from the demographics beyond race and gender is that I know people don't, there are many practitioners who don't like this, and I understand why, but you have to have a business rationale for why you're doing this work in the first place, why you're asking the organization to make this conversation. Yes, it should be something that people should do because it's just morally the right thing to do. But please explain to me and show me where in the U.S. capitalistic history that they have done things that they should do as opposed to we need to do this because we're bleeding money. That, that unfortunately, is oftentimes the, the primary motivation to get organizations, companies particularly, to do or not do something. Yeah. And so that, what you're saying is that, so the, the again, the who, it, would this be reasonable to? It's reasonable, I think, from, from a, a, an employee perspective, because again, I don't think we're, you know, most employees aren't looking, we just don't have to look at that bigger picture of the, the you know, market and how our how the organization and cash flow etc and profits but again when you're looking at it from a, a senior leader a ceo and executives it is a different process or a different lens but i do, i don't i don't think that's an easy shift for them and so it's easier again to give the holidays to give the training to give the awareness mm. everything that falls into that what we would call paradigm two a paradigm one would be representation manage um, making amends for past wrongs it's so where you're talking about affirmative action that's where affirmative action falls and paradigm two would be um, apply the golden rule and you're talking about valuing differences there so that's where the work tends to stay um, and then when you try to get into level three that's when you're talking about okay there's a ceiling that people can't get past you have mm -hmm. or just retention your retention rates are so are low you have a lot of attrition how do you deal with that? And that's where you need to start talking about paradigm three, which is um, looking at your organizational culture, your systems and your policies, because that determines mm -hmm. you can get into the door through representation. You'll stay because you can find like navigate those differences where you can have those interpersonal relations where you can connect to people with people around the social gatherings and celebrations. But when it comes to doing the work and you can't get, like you get in the door, but you can't navigate the rest of the house. Sure, sure, sure. And that's when people are like, let me go someplace else where there's not these obstructions that keep me from being able to contribute fully to the 
or not only to the organizational objectives of the organization, but I can contribute to my full potential as well. Sure, sure. And so. Yeah, that, that's, you know, I, I think I understand the business case. I think, you know, David Thomas and others have written about get rid of the business case. And I've always been like, mm, and it's not a business. business. <laughs> yeah, right. It's a social experiment or social club or social group that doesn't have a business imperative behind it. And that's a totally different, I mean, the the principles still apply, but you're talking about a different, different setup. Exactly. And I, I, I totally agree. I've, I've, I've struggled by to not say business case, but to make business rationale, because I know there's a lot of people that say, Oh, if people are telling you you should have a business case, you're absolutely wrong. And I think because of that kind of predominant narrative, it's the right thing to do. It's morally just and right. And I think a lot of people feel that way, but if, if it doesn't have some kind of tangible connection to your purpose, which for most businesses is profit, yeah. Not in its entirety. If you want to do more than that, but if you can tie it where there's at least part of it is about you being doing well and doing good, yeah. um, it's yeah. hard to make that case. So I totally resonate with that. What also came to mind um, as you were talking was um, obviously companies might not see it at the most highest executive management levels where they're like, I need to see this, you know, using the wokeness. I want to see what, what's this doing to our bottom, our top lines. What's it doing to our people? Maybe some are even aware enough that they know it could impact culture, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Both organizational culture, the way we get things done around here, that, that culture. Um, As practitioners internally, have you seen that conversation about systems, structures, policies, and practices being put front and center in the beginning, because that's what, to me, diversity management was was not shy. This is how you get there. It takes time, and you have to prioritize systems over what I say symptoms. So your your symptoms are going to come, but if you have the principles in place, you can deal with them when they come. But if you don't, you're going to have these cycles. So do, do, have you sensed that as a practitioner body? And, you know, I think sometimes when I talk to you, you're kind of like that practitioner-esque <laughs> with a different lens onto this work, because a lot of people that have been in this for a long time don't think about this the way you do. You think about it from the principles of your dad. A lot of it, think about it from how they feel at mm-hmm. whatever particular time something happens to oftentimes somebody that looks like them, Right. right? So, so, and I get that. It's, I'm, there's no criticism behind it, but as as a practitioner body, are we are we thinking in terms of you know paradigm three? You've explained it, and paradigm four. Are we mostly staying focused in one and two? Um, I think I think as a practitioner body that we're staying focused focused on paradigms one and two. We talk about again. We speak to paradigms three, but when I like when we've gone into organizations. We, we try and meet, meet organizations where they are. Oftentimes, mm-hmm. um, they, organizations will have, say, a diversity, I won't say a diversity council, they have a DEI council. Um, and that's one that's engaged in the work, managing the work of celebrations and 
basically that's largely what they're a lot of what they're focused on. Mm-hmm. And then I've talked with people in that work, they become exhausted because it's sure. activity after activity after activity. And yet you've got great camaraderie, but what do you have to show? Has it really made an impact on what you've identified as critical actions or metrics that you all need to meet in terms of representation that sustaining that representation and then increasing numbers, let's say, um, of minorities and women in senior leadership and throughout the organization. And what happens is that when we come in with the, the diversity management framework, we recognize that one, a lot of groups, they're, they're passionate about the work, but, and so they want to do the work and we're telling them, you're just going to exhaust yourself because it's not sustainable. What to make it sustainable, you also need to look at the systems, policies, and practices. That's a long-term haul. You can't just go into an organization and be like, Hey, you know, change this, update that, modify this, because it's, it's just a process. You have to, I mean, just a rollout, just think about the rollout of a new piece of technology. This is a new technology. It's just not digital. It's more just, you know, you're trying to, like you said before, I think you mentioned the changing the mindset. That's a whole different, in terms of how do you, what does diversity even mean? How do you, do you realize that you're already doing it? And that's one thing I think. You're already managing diversity. Our tools are just to help you even increase your ability and your capability. Right. But to, um, and I think, yeah. So I think that there's, um, I think it's uh, just human inclination to want to do, 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 because that's how you can get results, outcomes, et cetera. But the, the work that needs to happen at Paradigm 3, it can start. And it's a, it's a process. It just takes time, you know. And I don't think that people are often that patient because they want to see something, do something. And I'm like, you didn't, we didn't get to this space just overnight. And so the solution, sure. the true solution or the sustainable solution that'll not only help us achieve structural change, but then we'll have, I think will create greater impact for the work that you are doing for care in paradigms one and two. Um, that takes time because right now we're doing a lot in one and two, but it's not sustainable. It's not creating the outcomes that we're expecting. And like you said, it, it creates more backlash it, in this sure. day era. It's creating more absolutely. backlash. Absolutely. And, and you know, and it's been creating backlash over and over again. So it's kind of like a, it's, it's kind of like, you know, Halloween, the movie, like you have a new one every few years, you know, they, they sell out and people love them. Right. But yeah. you, they're somewhat predictable. Like, you know, yeah. it's going to come and you know, it's going to go and, you know, you know, Mike Myers will never die. Is it Mike Myers? I don't remember his name. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah he never dies. He just keeps coming back in different forms. Right. Yeah. And I, I, I'm not, I don't want to equate Halloween with diversity. That's probably not good for my business, but the, the reality is, I think we get in the way of ourselves by not thinking in systems and thinking long term. And I get it. And I think if we don't evolve beyond that, it's always going to be it's going to be people that come after us with this narrative of wokeness, this narrative of cancel culture. And I know it happens because we've been somewhat responsible as practitioners for doing that. But at the same time, we'd be a lot less susceptible to it if we had been thinking in systems because we right. would start building those things in before George Floyd. Right. So as an epidemiologist, I'm always thinking prevention, not just treatment. And a lot of times we're thinking, how do we treat the problem instead of, you know, if we put have principles in place, and I'm going to use this example because you, you gave a great table. Um, we did a webinar called Deconstructing uh, DEI 
I you know, was in 2020, 2021. I don't remember. It was, I think it yeah, was probably 2021, two. I think. Yeah, yeah. So we started, we did that, right? And you talked about how racial justice could look with a paradigm one through four framework. Right. I thought it was brilliant. And so you don't have to get away from social justice, but if you want to move the needle, you need to be able to put it into three and four if you want it to sustain beyond, you know, the peak of people's feeling at a particular point in time. Right. Because I remember you talked, just if you could talk a little bit about that when, when people were coming to you after George Floyd, how did you frame that for folks? Uh, so that they could understand that you can do this in a sustainable way, not just react to the to the immediate problem. Right. Well, what we did is just um, thought it would be helpful because, you know, a lot of you know, my father's a Ph.D. and, you know, just very ac academic. And so how do you make this successful so it's not just theory, but people can see the relevance of it? Because that what I so what I did is I took, you know, all this was happening, all these changes, companies changing brands and all this. And so I was like, where do these fall within the paradigms? Because it seemed a lot was happening. So you're like, man, a lot is happening. We're expecting like the world to change. And when you put it down by, when you categorize all the actions that happen by paradigm, if, if our belief is that par paradigm three is where you need all the systemic change the in order to create change that's sustainable and that, um, yeah, that that then has a broader impact across the organization, uh, in this case, the country, or and sometimes we're looking at the work that organizations did. Many of the things like the, the, the scholarships, HBCU scholarships, funding, that kind of stuff, it can either fall in paradigm four, because you're talking about organizations, that's, that's PR, basically, marketing for mm -hmm. them. And so, or it can fall in paradigm one, because you're providing access to groups that didn't have access before. Right. Uh, paradigm three, though, that's par that's all one and four um, things like paradigm two would be. Um, uh, uh, God, I can't think of, I don't have the chart in front of me right now, but it'd be more looking at just the differences um, that are in the space. How do you navigate those different differences? Even paradigm four would be like you had um, I forget the Uncle Ben's and Aunt Jemima changing their brands. Now they're right. I look at them on the books on the market shelf, grocery shelf, and I'm like, I don't recognize those at all. But just, okay, so those are all, but they're not paradigm three. But paradigm three would be um, like what's, I put in paradigm three when Derek Chauvin was convicted, not only uh -huh. indicted, but convicted for um, the murder of George Floyd because it, you're talking about a system generally in the prison system or the um, social in the justice system, what officers don't get indicted, much less convicted. Yeah, and so true. for me, that was a structural change. Now we'll see if it's a, something that's actually remains a structural change. If there's still that, you know, and I'm not even saying now all white officers got to be convicted. I'm like, does the system work for everyone in the same sure. way? Exactly. And you know, and the, the reality is in the U S Obviously, percentage-wise, black people are are uh, proportionally um, impacted more by the police. But in terms of raw numbers, there's quite a few white people that get killed by police. Oh yeah. And so, if you create the system, it's not just a system for black people right. or so-called marginalized people. It's for everybody, and right. and and most of the people that get killed by the police are poor. 
Mm. And so that's the, the other thing. So everybody ends up winning when you do right. this based on a system instead of just based on a reaction. So right. that totally, totally resonates. Um, I want to just go over the, we're, we're going to make, um, at some point, make the PDP available to people. Right. You've been, you have this survey. It's really, really cool. Um, when I first came across, I was like, wow, this is powerful. Um, what does the PDP do for folks? What, what kind of, what, what do people learn from it? What, what can they do with it once they take a, a personal diver diversity paradigm um, assessment, both individually and for their organization? Right. I think on one level, it just creates a, a level of awareness, of self-awareness. One, what the result or the outcomes that you, the reports that you get from the personal diversity paradigm when you take it, is you get your individual results and it indicates which of the four paradigms where you have a, where your scores indicate you're in the most dominant, where you hold that position or that paradigm as the dominant lens through which you look at the world and see diversity. Um, some people do end up um, with par multi like two paradigms that are tied for that dominant paradigm. So that's not strange or anything. But it basically one gives you an awareness of where you are. Then it also helps you see, particularly when you're working with another group or within a group, it helps you see where others are along that paradigm because everyone's not going to hold the same um, paradigm, mm -hmm. dominant paradigm. Mm -hmm. And I think, and then I think it also shows that, um, and one thing about the paradigms, you're not just paradigm one you're not just paradigm two your scores right. actually touch on all the paradigms but it just uh, you have a dominant paradigm normally that you through which you view the world and so that shows that there's an interconnectedness also just amongst people whatever that group is it's not like okay mm -hmm. paradigm one's over there and you know it's not black and white cut and dry sure. um, so i think just the level of awareness that happens I think it also helps to show that there, that your paradigm or your perspective isn't the only perspective that's mm. on the table. And so, right. and we're not asking you to change your paradigm. We're saying right. this is your paradigm and this is, um, and it's good and it's necessary. And there are also other paradigms that exist on the table. They're good and they're necessary. And you know what, if you want as, um, as particularly from an organizational perspective, if you want to create a holistic approach to managing diversity, you need not only people, you need to have all four of these paradigms represented. Not only sure. they're represented because the people in your organization are going to fall within these four paradigms, but you need them also to look at what actions are you taking because people will see themselves by the actions that you you take. And if, if you're taking actions that don't reflect the paradigm that they hold, they're not going to see you as doing diversity. No, so, no, no. And that's where you get people who are feel it's either you're not doing the real work or you're not, this has nothing to do with me, depending on, you know, if you, do, if to, yeah, what are you doing and where is that categorized along the paradigms? And then where do the people in your organization, where do they fall along those paradigms? But no, I, I, that's, that's spot on. And how I've been able to use it has been just that. So when you create your approaches, they're not focused so heavily in one area. Mm -hmm. And then I've also seen where, you know, a client used it and ended up focusing on one area. And then I see the longer term effects of that and I come back and say, hey, we, we knew this could happen. <laughs> mm -hmm. We probably need to rethink the approach as a result of seeing how people responded to going down that path that might have been mostly paradigms one and two. 
Yep. And I think it's not, and I think it's important to say that sometimes you do have to focus on a specific paradigm and that's sure. the good thing you can focus as, as the requirements need dictate. Sometimes you're going to focus on paradigm one, but then you also have to pivot sometimes to paradigm three, sometimes a paradigm four to paradigm two. But oftentimes, like you said, we, we tend to get stuck in the, the sweet spot for our organization, probably normally where we would just tend to focus anyway um, to often to our detriment. It's like exercising, you know, just exercising your quads and then your hamstrings are going to suffer because there's not that balance. So right. I think that's the same thing with the, the paradigms is that it provides a, yeah, a, a framework that lets you touch on every aspect of the organization, the work of the organization so that it can be most effective. So. I love it. So April, I wanted to ask you a few questions. I'm going to ask you one before I ask you some personal ones. Okay. Um, as uh, organizations and practitioners try to make the work of uh, DEI come to life and make inclusion, equity, and diversity normative, what three bits of advice would you give to those who want to deepen their practice? I think the first one would be to walk the talk and not just talk the talk. Um, just in terms of whatever it is that you're presenting and the lens that you're using, oftentimes it's, yeah, just be since not even not about a level of sincerity, but there's a power that comes not just from having the information, but living out the information as well. Sure. And so that would be one thing. I think that's communicated, that can be communicated not beyond the words that we say. There's, mm -hmm. there's life that people can feel or not feel depending on the, the depth of work that we've done ourselves. Mm -hmm. So that would be one thing. Um, and then I would say, I have don't practice insanity um, in the sense of, you know, that definition, you know, if the definition of insanity is doing the same thing, expecting a different outcome. We've been, I'll say we've been doing pretty much the same thing um, since, you know, we start talking about diversity. And I think if we expect different outcomes, that's insanity. And so I'm not saying yeah. not to don't not not to do those things, but to also expand what you're doing, because sure. uh, just looking at the state of our world. This is where we are. And I don't think it's a great place. There are great things happening. So that's one thing I'm learning from you. There are good things happening. We just don't hear about them a lot. So they're out here. But I think that there's definitely room for expansion and growth in that space. So, okay. Um, and then I think the third thing, I'm borrowing this from my father. I think it might have been from the shaming of diversity, but just we, from an industry space, is like we don't have any uniformity really about definitions, approaches. And so it's kind of like a wild, wild west in the sense of what we're putting out there. So I would encourage just the industry in general. Is there some way that we can come together and create some type of um, agreed upon framework, mm. definitions? Because I think when you have organizations, and organizations are so risk averse, whether it be just the person who's bringing you in to do the training, they're so concerned, is this actually going to work? Is this going to make sense? And, or, and then from a, you know, just a large, and it goes out from there just in terms of the risk. And so when you sure. have that type of um, consistency, um, 
because there's uniformity across the work, then it also allows you to compare apples to apples and oranges to oranges, not only for us as practitioners within the industry, but also for those who are, that we're going to and offering this work to. Because you oftentimes have, you know, not oftentimes, people are always asking, what's best practices? What metrics should we use? And I'm like, you know, it really all depends. Nobody wants to hear that answer. But I think if you had an industry that had, you know, specific markers, um, that are that we agree upon what they mean and what markers we yeah, should yeah. Yeah. I think that would be that's a no, it's just, that's, that's a big term, you know, collective. No, that's, it's brilliant. That's brilliant. There's so much to that that we could probably unpack a whole nother episode. And I might have to bring you back around that is to just talk about the frameworks and standards within those frameworks that we can use to manage the complexity of our organizations. And that's what I like about you know, your dad's work and what you've been doing is when you, when you rest on principles, you can lean into that complexity and not have to shy away from it or, or, or go to something simple right. because you can work through it with principles. And so right. that, that's, that's extremely powerful. So I ask all my guests, uh, April, um, a favorite song or movie that you go to over and over again. The Matrix. The Matrix, all three or just the first one? Oh, just the first one. Just the first one. <laughs> okay. You're a purist. You're, you're kind of like me in that regard. One book yeah. that has influenced you or inspired you significantly? The Bible. You're the second person that said that. And yeah. I would have to agree in a, in a lot of different ways. Um, a person, and in this case, uh, you can maybe add to a person that's influenced or inspired you personally or professionally in your life or in your career. Well, obviously my father. Um, and then I would add um, his kind of what, which she was called the um, chief. What was she called? Um, chief translator. Her name is Dr. Elizabeth Holmes. And she worked with my father. Um, and she basically all the ideas that he had, you know, great and wonderful. She was able to package them. She helped create the PDP in terms of just like the outline, you know, just putting it all together, all of that content to make it accessible and actionable as you, you know, um, so I, I, yeah, I thought you'd appreciate that, but yeah. cause it, otherwise it's just kind of, again, theory, but she made yeah. it very real, but the reason she, so Dr. Holmes was a, was a Dr. Roosevelt Thomas translator. Yep. Chief translator. Yeah. Okay. And so, That's so cool. The reason she, uh, I list her is because when I, you know, was thinking about um, running, you know, starting to run my father's business, they, we had a client that was May. They had a client coming up in July. And so I needed to find, I, I did I obviously couldn't do it. And so people told me I should talk to Elizabeth. So I didn't, um, I told her that I basically felt called to do this work. And she, she asked me, do you know anything about diversity management? I'm like, no, but I feel called and this is what I'm supposed to do. So it's going to work out somehow. And when she heard that, she was like, okay, I can, I can respect that. So she, she offered to give me all the support that she could. And so, and to this day, again, 10 years later, she's like one of my best friends. And so, wow. yeah, but just her support really has been yeah. I, I can feel a lot of I can feel a lot of love when you said that, and I, yeah. I really I, if if y'all were here in the studio with us, we'd be like, "There's a lot of love that's mm. going on." In, in yeah. That so, April, last question is any question that I should have asked you that I didn't today. Um, it's not you kind of asked it, but just when I think about it, it's like what's missing, right, from this work, and. 
the question that what I would say is just heart, heart work mm-hmm. and heart awakening. Because like when I started in this space, you know, as a musician coming into diversity, people would often say, oh, you can use the imagery of, you know, diversity being like a symphony. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. But that I mean, one, I'm it didn't it never did anything for me because it's very heady. And so mm-hmm. I'm like, I realize I realize now that's why it didn't do anything for me is that it's a very that's a very like rational way to look at it. Yes, it is like a symphony. But even with, and that's an image that people have been using for decades, but I'm like, does that change people's hearts towards the work? I don't Mm -hmm. think so. And so, but what, but what I've discovered, I haven't done it in the diversity space, but as a musician, I've, um, in in a non-church space, I've used music and just the feedback that I've gotten, it's just like one person said that when they heard my music, that it just opened their heart. And so, and this was someone who was incarcerated. And just, you know, when you have the story, the, the myth is that, you know, incarcerated people are cold, unfeeling, et cetera. But, you know, he, for him to say, I, yeah, this, uh, it opened his heart and he was able to feel, you know. And so for me, I'm like, if that's the kind, in that space, opening up hearts, that's when I think everyone, regardless of where you sit at the table, on which side of the table, to have that type of heart opening that's where conversations really need to come from because i think off yes i think definitely particularly like i can speak from as a black woman you know there are things you get emotional about when you see what happens to other black people or even just injustices just in general right but is it is my heart open in those times i'm not sure mm. you know and yeah, so that's deep april there's a different and april you 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 went deep at the end <laughs> you know i mean you there was deep there was depth there all along but that was deep and it means that I have to bring you back so we could go there because that's a space where if we're going to create something extraordinary, the heart has to, to, to be a part of it. And, and in fact, I would say the heart has to lead it. Yeah. So with that, April, I appreciate you. I appreciate the fact that your father and your mother brought you into the world. Um, and you've been a gift and a blessing to me for these years of getting to know you and learning more about your, your dad's work and learning about you. And uh, you've been there from the launch of my book in Atlanta mm-hmm. but before the book came out and all the way till today. And I'm looking forward to us doing this dance. Again, those of you that didn't hear, we are going to be looking to share more of these tools. Uh, you'll, you can follow April. Um, on LinkedIn, uh, April Thomas, and we'll make sure that you have access to following her. And then, of course, you can follow Inclusion Wins uh, and myself to learn more about these tools that we're going to be sharing very soon. April, thank you again. And uh, to everybody out there, make it a great day. Peace. If you are committed or simply a little bit curious about how to make DEI accessible to everyone, actionable, that is unambiguously prioritized and sustainable, aligned with personal and organizational purpose, hit the subscribe button. Make it a great day. Peace.